Amen. Good morning. My name is Brad. I'm uh, one of the teaching pastors here, and uh, if I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, um, I'll be out in the plaza area over here, and if you'll come and stand right in front of me like this, I won't miss you. I really would like to meet you. I really would. So if you would like to be met, um, stop me and uh, let's get to know each other a little bit. Well, <laughs> today's uh, like a big day, isn't it? Yeah, it's the uh, start of the final season of Game of Thrones. No, it's not. It's Palm Sunday. Game of Thrones just got more than Palm Sunday. No, it's Palm Sunday. Yeah, it, it is. Yes. So, <laughs> I want to dive right in to where we are in a series that we are calling Think Different. And uh, it's centered in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' most famous talk that he gives, right? And uh, I want to pick up from where Trev stopped last week, because uh, if that was part A of a subject matter, this is part B of it, but they have to tie together. One of the things that is a bit of a challenge with, uh, like the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus gave it, likely, not for sure, but likely it was one continuous talk that he gave to a group of people who were followers or wannabe followers of his, sitting on the side of a mountain, Sermon on the Mount. But when you and I look at it over eight, nine, ten weeks, we think of it as installments. And it's a real possibility to lose the over-mega theme that Jesus is really getting at and get lost in the week-to-week subject matter. Okay? So, we don't do that. Here's the overall theme. Jesus is... Uh, said that he has come into the world and that the kingdom of God is now present because he's present. The king is present. And what he wants to try to do, it appears, is really early on, is tell a group of people that if they would become students of his, apprentices of his, and ultimately say yes to being in his kingdom, his invitation, his ask to them, that this is what life would look like. And he describes what life in the kingdom would look like. And he deals with different things that are part of our kingdom here on earth that intersect with his kingdom. Like he talks about anger, for example. And he says kind of, you know, in your kingdom, the way you deal with anger is you deal with the behavior. And you just decide, I'm not going to be angry anymore. And then you're angry again. He says, in my kingdom, we deal with the root. We go way upstream on that and we talk about, well, what causes anger? And if we'll think together about that and you'll walk with me for... 10, 20, 30, 40 years, we'll figure out together how anger is actually not the natural way that someone who lives deeply and long enough in the kingdom functions. That's one example, right? He takes through a variety of those examples. Well, last week, you know, if you were here, and by the way, if you weren't, go to our website where it's, uh, click on the button that says Sunday mornings, drop down menu will come in there and you can look at all of the archives of the talks that we've done. We videotape each one of them. This is one you want to go back and listen to. It's going to help. I typically don't make sense in Sunday mornings, but if you do, it might make some sense today. Okay? So do that. But here's where Trev took us. It's a 12 verse section of um, Matthew chapter 7, part of his old Sermon on the Mount. But in it, Uh, Jesus starts to go down a road with his listeners and with us, and he says there's a deadly tendency that human beings have in the kingdom of the world, functions differently in my kingdom, in the kingdom of the world, however, and that is this tendency to make assumptions of other people, 
about who they are based on what they say, how they act, how they look, and then to come to some form of judgment, or if we don't like what we see, judgmentalism, where we diminish them, we actually approach them with some degree of contempt and ultimately maybe condemnation. And Jesus would say, in the kingdom of this world, in the culture of his time, that's how it works. However, not in my kingdom. I treasure people. I value them. And in a little while, I'll show you how much I value them. I'm going to go all the way to a cross. And I'm going to give my life because I treasure them so much. So judgmentalism, just in time, you're going to figure out, if you walk with me in my kingdom, it's just not a natural part of what we do. We love people of all kinds. And Trev took us through some stories and some ideas of what Jesus might have been after, where, you know, for example, he uses this metaphor of, uh, you got to be really careful because uh, you want to point out something wrong in someone else's life. He refers to it as a speck in their eye, but you got this log thing going on in your own eyes. It's really hard to see correctly and accurately. And uh, Trev, in a real helpful way, gave us six things that kind of spiritual exercises that we might be considering as we think about what life in the kingdom would be. Here are the six that he gave us. One is, nothing is as it appears. Like, that's the false assumption thing, right? Assume everyone is in a secret fight for their lives. Make friends outside your tribe. In fact, if people don't think or act or behave like you do or you think would be the best way, you can still be friends with them. Talk face-to-face over technology. It's that relationship piece. Ask questions, listen, and then ask some more questions. And lastly, diffuse judgment landmines. All of those things are wonderful ideas of how to not be judgmental exercises we can do. You know, you know what the bottom line with like judgmentalism is? Is it's our desire to control other people by our best solutions for their obvious problems. Because we know best, of course, right? We know perfectly what they should do and what they should become. <laughs> right? Jesus probably would say, no, for sure, he would say, ah, you got to rethink that one. You really have to give that some consideration. So, after going through this notion, this idea of judgmentalism and judging people and making false assumptions and removing this, like, log from your eye, there's still a question hanging, looming, if you will, that Jesus does not address in the first six verses. It takes to verse seven before he starts to address it. I want to answer that question. Do you know what the question is? I hope not, because I want to give you the question. Okay? The question is this. What do you do with the person who really has a speck in their eye? You know the metaphor that Jesus uses? You can't see that speck very well because you got this log in your eye? What if you decide, I'm not going to be, by Jesus' help and walking in the kingdom, I'm not going to be that judgmental, jumping to false conclusions. I'm going to get rid of that in my life. And I'm not going to be that person because Jesus reforms my thinking in that. And yet you still live around people who have specks in their eyes. They really do. What do you do? How do you handle that? What's the response to that? How do we help the person, genuinely help the person with a speck in their eye? I'll say it again. The starting point has to be that we have to look at Jesus' previous words and we must first humble ourselves 
and learn to see without condemnation. To use Jesus' speck in the log, in the log, second log metaphor, we must first remove the log from our own eye, which is that whole judgmentalism quick to make an assessment of people. This personal log removal includes not forcing what we are sure are our helpful things on other people. As long as I'm pushing my ideas of what I think is best for my friends and relatives on my friends and relatives, I am a reality revealing my contempt for them. And it's just a short step away from condemning them. And when I do that, do you know who the problem is? Me. I'm the problem in that case. You see, they're forced to respond to me in that case. And that typically leads them to judging me right back. It's reciprocal judging. There has to be a different way that we can look at one another, see one another's genuine blind spots, specks, if you will. But how do we do that? Well, this is what Jesus wants to help us with. After we've taken the log out of our own eye, and we're no longer forcing our best on other people, our neighbor, our friend, our spouse, our colleague, and they still need help, what do we do? What now? Well, what Jesus is not saying, and he's not going to say, is he's not going to say, well, just overlook and ignore the situation, thinking that maybe someone is going to come along and help them instead of us. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying, just approach it as, well, it's none of my business. After all, Jesus did say not to judge, but that's not what he's saying. He's not saying just let things go that are wrong and ignore those who need our help. But how do we help them, right? How do we help them? Well, if we're not to force our perfect solutions on people and we're not to ignore them, then what are we expected to do? We're expected to help them. We're expected to help those who are in need and to engage them, even if it is a eye-spec situation. And done well, with the right inner motive, It's actually an act of love that we do for one another. But how do we do it well? Now, this is really delicate. It really is. It takes a lot of grace and patience and actually time sometimes. It takes a lot of wisdom and care. And this is what Jesus gives his attention to in the next part of that 12-verse section. We covered the first six. Now he covers the rest. Doing it well would mean that we would do this in a way that helps people, that's not judgmental, that doesn't keep feeding them our best advice, that doesn't do them any good because they can't digest it. There's a better way, and this is what Jesus would say, and this is where we pick it up in verse 7. This is the advice that Jesus would give. Buckle up. Verse 7. Keep on asking, and you'll receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking, and you'll find. Keep on knocking, and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks, receives. Everyone who seeks finds, and everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. You parents, if your children ask for a loaf of bread, do you give them a stone instead? Or if they ask for a fish, do you give them a snake? Of course not. Jesus says that the answer to doing this well lies in the mysterious power of asking, seeking, and knocking. In other words, once I back away and I maintain a sensitive, non-manipulative presence, I am no longer the problem. 
as I assume everything is not as it appears and quite possibly the person is fighting a secret fight for their life and they can really be friends even if they disagree, those six things that Trev gave us, they learn when we do that that they do not actually have to protect themselves from us. And there's actually a chance that they might begin to open up and we could appear to be a possible ally and maybe even a resource for them. When we no longer try to manage or control them and insist that we must have them behave, think, and see the world that we do, of course, perfectly, right? And maybe they don't have to change the things that they can't really even change. Jesus' idea of arm-reaching, healing request, the power of asking, naturally comes to play. Talk about thinking different things, right? When we live as students of Jesus, our approach to influencing others to change, to sincerely help them for their good as well as ours, will simply be to ask. It's crazy, isn't it? Here's the thing. To ask them to change and then help them in any way they ask us. You know, this is at the heart of what Jesus appears to be saying as the way that we are to help someone who really has a speck in their eye. Isn't it interesting? This is how he tries to help us. You know, he sees our specks all the time. And he could, as the sovereign, gracious God of the whole universe, who gave his life to take away specks, right? He could come to us and he could say, get rid of the speck in your eye. Do it. Instead, he comes as a request. It's an ask. He doesn't demand it of us. He asks us, would you like to live in my kingdom with me? Would you like to experience the soul-relieving, cleansing power of my forgiveness? Would you like that? Would you like to have spiritual life where you go from spiritual death to spiritual life and I infuse you with my spirit? Would you like that? It's a request. It's an ask. The most important thing in our lives comes to us not as a demand, but as an open-handed request that we get to say no to. And scores of us do. Or we say, yeah, kind of, like a tepid kind of thing. And it's years before we really, really mean the yes. Isn't it something that this is how he deals with you and me? He asks us whether this is something we would be interested in paints an incredible picture of what it is if we say yes. So let's go back to what he thinks about when he says ask. Back to verse 7 and 8. Keep on asking and you will receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking and you'll find. Keep on knocking and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives. Everyone who seeks finds. And everyone who knocks, the door will be open. Now, I want to stop here for just a second. Because if you're something like me, this is where your mind may go almost immediately. My guess is that if you have some extensive church background, you have heard this particular passage as the way to approach God in prayer. That if you ask him for something, you get it. If you seek him, you'll find him. If you knock long enough, hard enough, consistently enough, he will respond. But it's kind of through prayer is how it's presented. And actually, he's going to get, that, get there at some point, eventually, a little further down the road. But when he says what he says here, 
It's not actually talking about prayer. Don't take him there too quickly or we'll miss what he's trying to say. (laughs) Jesus is not yet there in his logic. What he's saying is this. What he's thinking about is the first six verses where he talks about judging and how damaging that is and how we need to get rid of the log in our own eye, which is that judgmentalism. And then he says, and this is how you do it. You ask. You ask the person. And then you, you seek and you ask again and you seek again and you knock and you knock on the door. Now, just hold on a second. You will not get this advice from our culture. You, they, won't, they won't offer this up. They won't probably even consider it as a whole, as a culture. You see, in our culture, we're encouraged and expected that if we want something to change in someone, we demand it of them. We keep score. We leverage. And, and if we ever do ask, we ask only once, and if there's no change, we actually begin the process of moving away from them. And this is how we're taught to do it. To ask without demand and ensured positive results just seems naive. Who does that stuff? Who can actually go to someone and go, hey, could I ask you to like, tell me the truth when you and I talk? Because when you don't tell me the truth, and I find out later on, it does something in me that just creates mistrust. Or you talk to someone about me in a derogatory way, and those things have a way of coming back, right? They just do. And I'm asking that if you've got something that troubles you about me, would you, before you say anything to anybody else, would you come talk to me first? Because if you don't, it does things in my heart that are just not healthy for me. But you, like, could you possibly ask that? And people respond that way? It wouldn't be how our culture would suggest. Jesus, on the other hand, would suggest, before you go that way, Asking is one of the most powerful forces in the whole universe, in his mind. I'll tell you about a guy by the name of Ji Zhang. I probably butchered his name, okay? He'll forgive me, I trust. He wrote a book called uh, Redemption or Rejection Proof. Rejection Proof. Subtitle is How I Bear, How I Beat Fear and Became Invincible During 100 Days of Rejection. So Ji Zhang is a Chinese national citizen who came to the U.S. many years ago with a dream of becoming the next Bill Gates. That was what he wanted to become. And he failed at it miserably. And at every turn, he failed at something that wasn't going to get him there. And he felt this overwhelming sense of rejection and realized if he didn't deal with his rejection, he would never prosper, he would never succeed, and never move forward. And so he came up with this preposterous idea. He decided that he would go out into his world and he would ask things of people that he knew they would never do for him and then he would feel rejection, his thinking being that if he got enough rejection, he would eventually become impervious and calloused and hardened to rejection and it wouldn't bother him anymore. That makes sense. So... This is his ridiculous idea. He decides for the next 100 days, he's going to every day ask a bizarre question of someone he knows he's going to get a no to. Okay? So this is his experiment. Day one, he goes up to a perfect stranger and asks to borrow $100. 
Rejection, right? That's exactly what happened to him. Not a chance. You wouldn't do that either. Day two, he went into a Five Guys burger joint and asked for a free burger refill. (laughs) This time what he got is the sales clerk said, hey, that's a good idea. I'd like that myself. I'll talk to the manager. Day three, went to a Krispy Kreme donut outfit and said, I'd really like you to make a donut the shape of the five Olympic rings and the color of the five Olympic rings. Would you do that for me? He got a yes. The guy went back and made it for him and brought it to him. Day four, he went to a Domino's and asked to be a volunteer pizza delivery guy. He got a no because of insurance liability. Day 15, he went to an Abercrombie and Fitch and asked whether he could stand in the window as a live mannequin. He got a yes. Nice, right? Day 23, he went into his local Starbucks and asked the manager whether he could stand at the door and be a Walmart greeter. And for the next hour, he was a greeter at Starbucks. To hear him tell the story after 100 days of this, this is what he'll tell you he learned. That he could ask for anything, but how he asked made the difference. When he asked humbly and graciously, gently, confidently, directly, and clearly, even if they were ridiculous, impossible asks, he ended up with some ridiculous, impossible yeses. Because he asked, and the way he asked. A sincere and humble request by its nature unites. A demand, by contrast, immediately separates. And it is this strange atmosphere of togetherness that characterizes the way of Jesus among us and what human beings were created to thrive in. You know, we actually, we know how to do this. We do it intuitively already as parents. It's a principle that we teach our young children. When they're too young to really even put words together, we teach them this. We teach them to say please and thank you. Now, this is understood to be basic courtesy and respect and politeness, right? It's also a way to teach them to get what they want. Right? You don't get it if you don't say please. So if you say please, you get it. Like these little conniving kids, they get that. Now, what we want is a genuine please. And when they get it, we want them to say, thank you. We get this principle. You ask. You don't just take. Your little sibling takes one of your toys. You're going to go over and you're going to say, please. Right? And they're going to be in trouble for taking it without asking for why. This is how we work. In fact, the reality of the power of asking goes beyond actually even using words. The last few weeks, we've had the joy of having six of our grandchildren together in our home. (laughs) One evening, uh, I was uh, watching hockey on TV, and in in our home, that's like sacred space, right? Like, when, 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 when I'm watching TV, people go to the corners, and they're quiet. They've hushed conversations because I'm watching hockey on TV. And I like to uh, eat sunflower seeds while I watch hockey. I don't know, it's a little strange. But my two-and-a-half-year-old grandson, Joshua, saw me sitting 10 feet away from my TV, opening up sunflower seeds, eating them, and watching the hockey. And it's my team. It's like I'm, I'm into this. And he comes and stands right in front of me. And I look around him. He moves over here. I look this way. He moves over there. Finally, I realize I'm not getting away from this thing. I look into his eyes. 
And I know what he's asking. He has evidently never seen someone cracking sunflower seeds. And he's mesmerized with grandpa dipping into a bag, snapping them, spitting them into a cup and eating. And he's just, he's just staring at me. And I know what he wants. So I turn to him and say, get out of the way, kid. <laughs> like, these are grandpa's sunflower seeds and you're bugging me right now. I want to watch the hockey game. Go find grandma. Of course I didn't do that. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. I thought about it. But those eyes, those eyes. I reached into the bag and I opened up a sunflower seed for him and I handed him the little sunflower and it worked. He left. And he was back 30 seconds later. More. No, please. No request, really. No thank you for the last one, Grandpa. More. He just expected it. And so now I know I'm in trouble. This could go on for quite some time, as a matter of fact. So I give him another one. He runs off, comes back. We do this for five minutes or so, and finally I go, okay, I give up. Josh, you'd like to sit on Grandpa's lap and watch hockey with him? Yeah. So I pick him up, put him on my lap, and for the next 20 minutes or so, we're cracking open sunflower seeds and... It's so cute to try to watch him do that himself. He can't do that. And I totally forgot about the hockey game. Because something more interesting was right here with me. The power of asking. He never even asked. But there's something about when we care about someone and they ask us or we ask them, there's a power behind that. And there's a power behind the repeated request. You know, a single request may be rejected. So when it comes to genuinely helping a friend or a relative or someone we love with an eye spec, we ask and then we keep on asking. We seek and we keep on seeking. We knock and we keep on knocking. Now Jesus is not saying, nag and keep on nagging. Not what he's saying. He's not saying stalk and hunt down and keep imposing yourself. Nor keep pounding on them till they relent and give in to the pressure and give you a sunflower seed. Mm -mm. He is saying make a request. And if the answer is no, even emphatic no, don't throw your arms up and walk away. Find a different way to ask. Use a different means or a method or maybe a different tone. Or maybe be clearer or drop the threats or whatever. Rethink before you ask. But ask again. Seek. Stay with them. Stay in contact as you're able. You don't have to unfriend them. You can still celebrate their birthdays and successes in their lives and look for ways to affirm them and encourage them. You need to maybe need to find sensitive ways to do that, but keep seeking their best. Knock. Be present with them in their lives. Let them know every once in a while that you're there and that you care for them and that you'll do whatever you can for them. That if they want your help, all they have to do is ask. But here, maybe more, no, not maybe, more than anything. Ask God on their behalf. Ask Him. Seek the goodness of God for them. Although you don't need to do this because He already knows Knock on God's door on their behalf for their good and for their blessing. 
You see, these words of Jesus are not asking, seeking, and knocking for what you want to get from God. They're not. Though honestly, as I grew up, that's the only way I heard them. But rather, they are for what God would want to do in the other person's life to bring wholeness and healing and peace in their life. For their sake, mostly, but maybe also for yours. This is the context in which Jesus is saying this. It's interesting. Jesus has a little brother named James. And James writes about the same subject matter. It's really the first kind of section that's included in the canonized New Testament. And I got to thinking as I read what James says about this, I wonder if he learned that from his big brother Jesus. I wonder how Jesus, like how do siblings ask each other? I wonder how Jesus asked James when he needed something from him or wanted James to change something. In any event, maybe, maybe not, but this is what James writes in James 4. He says, what's causing quarrels and fights among you? Great question. Don't they come from the evil desires that war within you? You want what you don't have, so you scheme and you kill to get it. You're jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and wage war to take it away from them. Yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. And when you do ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You only want what will give you pleasure. James is talking to Jesus followers and kingdom dwellers who are at odds with each other. And his idea is that rather than quarrel, fight, gossip, question, and slander, we should simply ask in a humble, loving tone. See, that's his solution to competition. It's interesting enough that he would suggest we ask each other, but really he says, ask God. Make a request of God. And it appears to be ask God for good rather than what you might want to see happen in their lives. Ask him for God's good of what he might want to see. Ask God for those that you're at odds with, that he would prosper them and he would bless them and he would do grand and great things in their lives. That's the world Jesus lived in. We think he lived above it, he did in one sense, but that's the culture of his day, same as ours. It's interesting, I imagine this as Jesus is talking to these friends, these people on the side of the hill, and he so believes what he's saying. He so wants people to move beyond trying to control by our good ideas and not just walk away, but to love one another, to graciously and kindly ask about things that we see in one another's lives. He goes, how am I going to get this through to them? How, what will, like, this is so odd. This is such a different approach from his culture as it is ours. What am I going to get to? What could I think of? What could I say that's going to help them understand? It's always like he gets an aha moment. He goes, I know. I know what I'll do. I'll tell them an idea, a metaphor, something they'll all grasp because they're all in that kind of realm. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to tell them about parents and kids and how they function. This is what he says, you parents, if your children ask you for a loaf of bread, do you give them a stone instead? The obvious answer is no. Or if they ask for a fish, do you give them a snake? Of course not. Now, of course, every once in a while we hear of a parent or a dad or a mom or something, they do that, but we know that's not, that's not parenting. That's not normal. That's not healthy. It's not what we would aspire to be or want other people to be. What Jesus is saying here, you know the power of a child ask. You do. You know what that does to you as a parent. In the right atmosphere, in the right tone, that same power applies to one another just as you hope it applies to your Father in heaven. This is so important to Jesus. 
that this is the metaphor and analogy that he uses. And then there's another verse that he goes to, and this is where we often switch into the prayer mode, that we think this is about prayer, but don't do that too quickly. It's still in the same flow of subject matter. This is what he says. You know, if you're a parent, you know when your kids ask, you know, right? You get that. So that's the power of asking. So if you as sinful people, you know, imperfect people, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask Him? In other words, don't just ask for what you want from the other person. Go to God as you would a loving parent and ask Him for good gifts. For them. For them. Ask on their behalf, not yourself. Unless, of course, you're asking Jesus, what do you see in my own heart toward that person? What do I need to change? What am I not doing right? What am I not seeing? Where am I being judgmental? Where am I jumping to conclusions about who they are? Where am I assuming the worst? Go ahead and ask that. That's a good question to ask them. But the intent here is ask them, not for your stuff and what you'll get. Ask them for the other person. Could you serve them that way to do that? Many years ago, a Nazi Germany pastor and theologian and Nazi dissident named Diedrich Bonhoeffer wrote a really short but powerful book called The Cost of Discipleship. It's such a short book. It's worth a read. The cost to him, by the way, was his life. Following Jesus cost him his life. He wrote this. He said, only Christ can speak to me in such a way that I may be saved. What he's saying is only Jesus' power in our lives, when he asks us and invites us, whether we want to consider him, only that voice really can save us. So others, too, can be saved only by Christ himself. This means that I must release the other person from every attempt of mine to regulate, coerce, and dominate them with my love. Thus, this spiritual love will speak to Christ about a brother more than to a brother about Christ. It knows that the most direct way to others is always through prayer to Christ, and that love of others is wholly dependent upon the truth of Christ. What he's saying is, talk to them, to God first of all. Talk about them to God first of all, before you talk to them. Get direction and guidance. Do you know that Jesus knows stuff you and I don't know? And there's stuff we'll never know unless he tells us. And he's such a gentleman, sometimes you won't tell us, unless we humbly come to him and we ask him, would you give me insight into myself? Would you give me insight into what you would do as your next step? Would you help me with this, Jesus? I'm asking you. Now, of course, any good talk, and it's time to end, would come up with some really practical suggestions how you could do this, right? Okay, Uh, so I don't usually do this. Well, I guess I do because I am doing it, right? I want to give you two marketplace books that you can read. Uh, I think they might have stolen the ideas from Jesus. I'm not sure. But I think they might have. One of the books is called Crucial Conversations, and the second is Difficult Conversations. Either one or both are worth a read. But here's what you're going to find. Here's like the Cliff's Notes on these things. They're going to tell you these three things are key, practical applications of this, of the ask, okay? (laughs) One is, if it's going to be successful, abandon the need to be right. If you still think you need to be right, don't ask. Secondly, assume the best possible motive in the other person. And if you can't do that, don't ask. Thirdly, abandon blame. If you still want to post blame on this thing at the end, don't ask. But if you're prepared to not be right or need to be right, you can assume the best motives and you're ready to abandon blame. They would say the next step is 
to ask. Isn't that something? It's really something. Now, those are kind of practical things, but I'm a, I'm a pastor. That means I'm not practical. No. It means this is how I think. I still think that the first conversation in all these matters is with Jesus Christ. I think we come to him first. I think we get on our knees, like physically get on our knees. And we ask him. And we ask him this first of all. Jesus, in the area of life where I see somebody has a speck in their eye, and they really do, and I can see the hurt that it causes, it's caused maybe me some hurt. Before I go and talk about the speck, Jesus, do you have some advice for me? Would you like to search my own heart first of all? Would you, do you see a speck in me? And if you do, would you convict me of that? Would you point it out? Because I'm opening my life to hear from you. And I'm asking you to seek me down on this and to keep knocking on my door until that thing, if it's there, is brought to you and you deal with it. But then, having done that, if I'm going to go ask, Jesus, would you help me to say the right words in the right tone, in the right time, in the right way? But even more than that, the one that has a speck, Jesus, would you reach into their world? Jesus, I'm asking you on their behalf, would you heal them? Would you restore them? Would you show them that speck that hurts people and hurts themselves and damages their family? Jesus, would you do that? Because you're so much better. You're so tactful. You're so wise. You have that ability to, to convict in ways that I, I don't. But would you do that? I want to see them live a whole, healthy, wonderful life with you. Jesus, would you do that for them, please? That's the ask. And there's such a power in it. You as parents know how to give good gifts. How much more your father knows how to give good gifts to those who ask, seek, and knock. Now, Jesus, this is a more than a bit of a challenge for us. The likelihood is we all could think of somebody, even in this moment, maybe we have, that we see a speck in their eye and we see the hurt that it does to them and the hurt it does to people around. And in some cases, we've tried some things that have just made it worse. And we don't want to do that again. And so we're asking whether if, as we come to you humbly, as we come to you with like the, the river of knowledge, the river of love, the river of all wisdom, would you help us with this? And if it needs to start with us and a little bit of confession, well, then you start with that. But we're not going to walk away with your help and ask and seek and knock and trust you with the end result. Amen.